Am I the only one that that song makes want to dance? Is it just me? Royalty free? Yeah, like, don't ever do that again. Sorry. Hey, good to see you. Whether you're here in the room or joining us online, honored to have you along for the ride. And by the way, um, a very special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. Uh, you didn't know this, but when you walked in or tuned in, uh, you couldn't have picked a better week to join us because today we're beginning a brand new series called in the end, uh, that has literally been in the works for years. And here's why I say that. I have now been a pastor for a quarter of a century. That is, I know, I made it, I think. Anyway, um, but during that time, I have had more than a few conversations with people whose time on this earth was coming to an end. And during many of those conversations, I've noticed something. A lot of the questions that we ask sort of intellectually when we're living our lives, going about our business, you know, questions about life and pain and different religions and grace and even what happens when we die, those questions sort of resurface when we face either the end of our own life or the end of the life of someone that we love. And when those questions resurface, they carry an urgency that they simply didn't have when it felt like life on earth was just going to go on forever. I mean, said a bit differently, there are questions that really matter to us in the end. And so for the next five weeks, what I want to do is explore a few of them with you as a way to sort of prepare us all for the day, well, that they become the most important questions of all. And so, so that said, this week I want to begin our study with what I believe to be the first question that we tend to ask when we're faced with the end of this life. And it's a question I've been asked a whole bunch of times in living rooms, in hospital rooms, in funeral homes. Uh, it's a question that's been raised to me after a car accident or a doctor's visit that ended with an incredibly challenging piece of news. Uh, and the question, it, it's amazing, it only takes one word to ask, and I'm sure you've had a moment where you just, why? Right? Like, why would a loving God allow something like this to happen to me or to someone that I love? And why wouldn't he intervene in order to relieve my suffering or the suffering of the someone that I love? And uh, what's interesting, they're really great questions. And as it turns out, they're questions that people have, of faith have been asking pretty much for as long as there have been people of faith. Uh, historically, in the Christian tradition, these questions have driven scholars to write about something that they've called, well, they call it the problem of pain. Uh, this whole idea of how do we reconcile a loving God with pain in our lives. So here's how it was articulated by a famous author named C.S. Lewis, who you may remember wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia. In a book that he wrote called The Problem of Pain, which did not sell as well as The Chronicles of Narnia. There was no lion, and it was about pain, right? But here's what he tells us. Problem of pain, he says, here's, here it is. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures, that's us, perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. He says, but, maybe you've noticed, creatures, that's us, are not happy, at least not always. Therefore, he said, God lacks either goodness or power or both. And, and now to be clear, this statement doesn't describe what C.S. Lewis believed to be true about God. Rather, this is his description of the problem of pain, which he sort of unpacks in his book. But, but his point in this section is, is clear. It is really challenging to reconcile the existence 
of the pain that we experience in this life, and maybe especially the pain that often visits us at the end of this life with a God who loves us. So, so the question, is there a way to reconcile this challenge? Or maybe is there another way to think about the problem of pain? It will not surprise you to learn that I think that there is, and that's why I brought it up. Otherwise, it'd be a really bad talk. Be like, well, I don't know. Have a good day, right? Yeah, but before I show you what I believe that to be, I need to alert you to a limitation of my explanation. And the limitation goes like this. If you're here this morning and you're currently wrestling with your faith, because of something that has happened to you or to someone that you love. And I had a few people after the first service come and talk to me that have students at Michigan State University. And, and their question was right, you know, front of mind, right? They said the timing really, really couldn't have been better. But like, how could this happen and why didn't God do something? And, and that's, a, that's a great question. But if it's an emotional question you're carrying in this moment, I need to let you know that unfortunately my explanation today probably won't make you feel that much better. It's more intellectually satisfying than it is emotionally satisfying. But, but my hope in sharing today is to sort of reframe the way that you look at the problem of pain in order to help you better navigate the theological tension created by seasons of, of pain and confusion and frustration and, and even disappointment with God that, that just seem to visit all of us from time to time in this life. Okay, so to get us moving towards what I believe to be a better way to think about the problem of pain, um, I want to start by asking you a question. And we'll put it up on the screen. The question goes like this. Is it possible that a loving God has a reason for allowing pain? And I know you probably look at this question and think what I think when I first typed this question. And I, and I thought, no, that's not possible. But I guess that I reflected, I thought, yeah, yeah, I guess it, it, it's a fair question. Is it possible? Maybe I don't understand what it is, but is it possible that a loving God has a reason for allowing pain? Is it possible there's like an unexpected explanation for the problem of pain? And as I dug into this question, it, you know, I, I found something that was kind of surprising, but since the very beginning of the Jesus movement some 2,000 years ago, many of his followers have believed that there is actually a reason that a loving God would allow pain. And as strange as it sounds, they have believed that this reason is you and me. Seriously, um, an early Jesus follower named Peter actually wrote as much in a letter to some of the first Christians that made its way into the New Testament of the Bible. And so the letter was originally addressed to a community, a faith community, struggling to reconcile God's love for them with the incredible and undeniable challenges that they were experiencing as followers of Jesus in the first century. So here's what Peter, here's what Peter told them. He said, the Lord, speaking of God, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. And we're like, that's fascinating. What promise? I'm so glad you asked, right? When, when Peter writes about God's promise in this verse, he's referring to the fact that God has promised, like future tense, that eventually a day will come when he will make everything right and that peace will again reign on earth as it does in, in heaven. And we actually read a few verses last week from the book of Revelation that describe a vision of that day. Um, it's a vision that was sent to an early Jesus follower named John who recorded it for originally some first century Christians and it made its way to us in the Bible. But here's what John tells us that day will be like. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God. He said, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then, you know, say, well, what's that going to be like practically? He says, well, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. He said, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things had passed away. So at some point in the future is that God will make everything right again. And that's what Peter's talking about when he wrote that God is not being slow in keeping his promise. Essentially the promise that one day God's will and only God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says on that day there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain. That's the promise. And I know how that makes me feel, um, you know, and, I, and it raises a question because as inspiring as that is as a vision for our future, and it is, it doesn't really do much for what we're feeling right now. Like how do we explain what we experience now as well as God's apparent reluctance to like intervene and fix it? Well, if you think about it, if in the end only God's will is done, then right now, like in this era of history, there are a whole bunch of different wills being done on earth. Like there are times when your will is done and there are times when my will is done. And if we're being honest with ourselves, and maybe it's just me, sometimes our wills don't align with God's will, right? Consequently, sometimes when we exercise our will, we actually take things on planet earth in the wrong direction. Like more practically, there are times that the expression of my will directly or indirectly inflicts pain on some other people. And I bet the same is true for you. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that like it or not, we're kind of part of the problem on earth. Like we're part of the reason why life can be so painful for people. And I think the same was true for early Christians. Because I imagine it, uh, they were fed up both with themselves and their own brokenness and then the whole system of this world. And so they wondered why God was waiting so long to intervene and to restore the peace. That was the promise. And so they struggled to reconcile like their ongoing suffering with a loving God. And so Peter wrote to them, like they asked him the question and Peter responded with a letter. Peter, who had walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, been a witness to the miracles of Jesus. Peter, who had stood face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And Peter, in response to the questions, writes them a letter back to help them see what's going on from God's perspective. And he explained it this way. He wrote, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, check this out, he says, he is patient. In other words, Peter writes that the reason God seems slow in keeping his promise to make everything right is patience. Like God is patient with all of the sin in our world. He's patient with all of those things that aren't the way that he wants them to be. And, and now just so we're clear, his decision to be patient doesn't mean that the pain that we experience from the sin in this life doesn't break his heart. It's not that he doesn't care. And it's not that he isn't paying attention and it's not even that he's incapable of intervention. Rather, Peter says he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but wanting everyone to come 
to repentance. In other words, Peter says, listen guys, God's patience with sin in the world has a purpose. And that purpose is that he wants everyone to come to repentance, which sounds great. You're like, that sounds significant and I don't know what that means. What in the world does repentance mean? It's a word we really only use in church. So let me, let me tell you what I think Peter was getting after when he wrote the word repentance. Uh, repentance to a first century Jew basically meant this. To return to the way that God desires you to live. To submit your will to his will. That's what it means to repent. So like whenever somebody turns away from anything in their life that doesn't align with God's will and returns to the way God designed for them to live, that's repentance. And I'm telling you, whenever someone does that, whenever someone submits their will to God's will for their life, they will immediately reduce the pain that they inflict, again, directly or indirectly, on other people. Like as it turns out, in the end, Every human life is loaded with potential to make things more or less like God wants them to be. And that actually makes sense. Like if you pay attention to the way life works, if you're a parent, I mean, you see this with kids, right? It makes sense. But, but it also, at least from the perspective of faith, raises a great question. I mean, why would a loving God allow people to do something that was against his will, especially if it's going to hurt other people. And in order to answer that question, what we need to do is travel back to the very beginning of human history. Because since the beginning of human history, God has demonstrated that he loves people enough to let them choose whether or not to submit to his will. He doesn't have to, but he does. So just by way of example, consider how he framed one of the first instructions ever given to people. Uh, after placing them in a garden called Eden that he had filled with everything that they would need to survive and thrive, he told them this. He said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And that's the key. Every tree is an option. But he says, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. In other words, God tells these first people, listen, everything is possible for you, but not everything is helpful to you. So in this moment, if you think about it, he's inviting the first people to trust his will as it pertains to their behavior. But, but and this is key and really evident in the verse, they didn't have to. Like from the very beginning, people were free to exercise their will and not to honor God's. Before we go on, I want to notice one more thing in this passage. Just notice with me that God warns the people that if they depart from his will, uh, they're going to have a consequence. And, and it just begins a principle in the scriptures. Anytime there is sin, the, it, you know, sin always comes prepackaged with consequences. So God says to the first people, like, you can choose your actions but you can't choose the consequences that will flow from your actions. And, and that leads me to an absolutely stunning reality. Namely, that from the very beginning, God has loved people enough to let them reject his will because God desires relationship. You say, what's God after when he creates people? I would argue the primary thing he's after 
is relationship. A relationship built on mutual love and trust. I mean, think about it. Like, if God had filled the earth with robots and not people, there wouldn't be any human-inflicted pain at all because robots always do what they're programmed to do. Even the Roomba that seems like it's going off the rails. Do you have this sometimes? And it you know, chases down the dog, tries to vacuum him up, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it, it, they're just doing what they're programmed to do because that's what machines do. They have no will, so they're functionally incapable of sin. People, however... Well, we're a very different story. Like, we don't always do what God would have us do. But see, because he desires to build a relationship with us, he gives us the ability to reject him. I mean, if you think about it, we are actually free to neglect God's will and reject God's will as often as we'd like. But whenever we do... There are consequences. We invite brokenness and we invite pain into our world. All that to say God didn't create sin, but he did create beings, us, with freedom and as such indirectly created the potential for sin. Now, okay, so... Many of you know where the story goes next. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, after a period of time, and we don't know exactly how long, the first people began to suspect that God was holding out on them. And eventually the day came when they decided that they could find a better life apart from God's will than under God's will. And so they did the one thing that God had told them not to do. They exercised their will. And in so doing, they changed the world forever. Because in that moment, sin and its corresponding consequences entered the human story. I mean, the freedom that God's love for us requires actually explains much of the pain that we experience in this life. I said differently, every time someone turns away from God's will, someone may get hurt. That's just how it goes. In fact, I think that's the cause of a lot of the pain that we experience in this life. As C.S. Lewis explained it this way in, in The Problem of Pain. He says, when souls become wicked, and he's referring to every soul after Adam and Eve turned from God. When souls become wicked, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another. And this, perhaps, accounts for four-fifths of the suffering of men. He said, it is men, not God, who have produced racks and whips and prisons and slavery and guns and bayonets and bombs. It is by human avarice or human stupidity, not by the churlishness of nature that we have poverty and overwork. In other words, C.S. Lewis just, again, he can be wrong about this, but just in his observations, he says, you know, I think like four-fifths, 80% of the suffering that we experience in this life can be attributed to someone else's decision to extend their will and to turn away from God's will. 80% of all of those things that make us ask why a loving God would allow this to happen can it be explained by human freedom. 80%. And that's, that's stunning, right? But if you're paying attention, that actually raises another question because what about the other 20%? I mean, how do we explain the pain and the suffering that doesn't really seem like it's anybody's fault. 
all those circumstances that can make us ask why that are caused by forces other than destructive human behavior. How do we explain that? And I believe there is an explanation. And I'll just begin with the observation that the world in which we live, though beautiful, at times we just become aware that it is profoundly broken. Like if there is a creator of heaven and earth, then something has gone terribly wrong, not just with the people, but with like creation itself. It, it's, it's undeniable. You watch the news and natural disasters, right? Like the earthquake in Turkey, there's hurricanes, there's tsunamis, they just devastate lives every year. And then we think about, you know, disease and, and how things like cancer and Alzheimer's visit people that we love with a terrifying regularity. And so, okay, 80%, that makes sense. What about the rest of this? How do we reconcile, like, the problems with the natural world with a loving God? And, and as it turns out, the authors of the Bible give us a hint as to how to think about that, too, because they recorded that when the first people chose to turn from God's will for the first time, when they chose to sin, and I'm using sin there as a verb, as an action, they did something sinful— they tell us that in that very moment, sin as like a noun or a thing was released like a disease that affected and infected and impacted all of creation. And in that moment, the world that God had designed to be at peace, to be whole, to be unified, in that moment, it fractured into a million pieces and that peace that God had intended between himself and people, between people and people, between people and themselves, and between people and the natural world, that peace was all disrupted. And from that moment forward, something has been wrong with everything. There's an early pastor by the name of Paul who actually described this reality in a letter to Christians who were living in the city of Rome Another one of those letters that made its way into the New Testament of the Bible. Here's, here's what Paul writes about all this. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration. You say, Paul, what happened to creation? How did we get here? He said, well, it was frustrated. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And you're like, what is he talking about here? Well, here, here's what's going on. Paul writes that when the first people sinned for the first time, Everything that God had placed under the authority of those first people, and that was pretty much everything, suffered. Like in that moment, God's intentions for the earth and for people were frustrated and were corrupted. So that's, say, Paul, what happened? That's, that's what happened. When the first people turned from God, everything fell away from peace. Obviously, there's more because after identifying that creation was frustrated by sin, Paul, as he continues, points his readers forward to that same promise that we find in Revelation that one day, a day will come that God will make things right. And here's how Paul phrased it. He said, the creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay. He's like, what, what's, what is life right now about? He's like, well, it's kind of bondage to decay. And he says, and it will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, isn't that an incredible image? I mean, I mean think, think about this. 
Paul identifies the reality that in this age, the age in which we live, pretty much everything on earth experiences the pain of decay. But he says, but here's the good news. This is not where the story ends because Paul points us past the groaning of our present reality to the hope that one day God will restore the peace that was lost in the beginning. In fact, that is the essence of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. I mean, he came to mitigate our sin problem by dying on the cross. He came to conquer death when he rose from the grave, but he also came to embody the promise that one day all of creation would be restored, that everything would be brought back to unity in Christ. That's the hope that Paul is pointing to. And as he goes on, he identifies something else. And this, this totally resonates with me, and I'm sure it will with you too. He, Paul says, listen, it's not only creation that's groaning in the present age. You think about creation groaning, it's like the earthquakes, the tsunamis, the disease. Check out what he says next. He says, not only the creation, but, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. He says, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And I absolutely love that. It's like Paul says to his readers, listen, we people groan inwardly in this present age. It's a common, I was going to ask you, have you ever felt that way during an impossible, maybe even in the end sort of situation in your life, like something deep within you, deep within your soul is just crying out like it's not supposed to be this way? I felt it this week. We, we had a gathering on Friday afternoon for a wonderful lady in our community who had passed away from cancer. And as I was speaking about the gospel and what Jesus means to us in moments like that, I looked down in the front row and her husband and son are just sitting there with just tears streaming down their face. It just, it was, it's like it's not supposed to be like this. And after the service, I walked up and gave him a hug and I said, it's not supposed to be like this. This was not God's plan in the beginning and that's why it hits us, hits us at such a visceral level. It's like we weren't made for this. But, but it's a common part of the human experience. It has been almost since the very beginning. But again, Paul writes to encourage these early Christians that even in their darkest moments, they can have hope because, because of what Jesus accomplished. I mean, it's, it's interesting, but when you trace it back historically, followers of Jesus have always believed that this current world, the world in which we live, the world in which we groan, the world in which tears stream down our faces at times, this world isn't the final world. Because our world didn't start out broken. And it doesn't end up broken. And the version which we get to navigate in this season isn't the first version, and it isn't the final version and that gives us a lot of hope that God is on the move in human history. And one day there will be a day where everything comes back to wholeness. 
So yeah, this world, it wasn't the first world and it isn't the final world. And Christians have believed that almost since the beginning. But, but there's actually more than they believe because I would argue that many Christians have also long believed, and this is amazing, our current world is the best possible path to the best possible world. Even with all the groaning, you're like, well, how in the world can this be? You say, well, how, how can you say our current world is the best possible path to the best possible world? What, what do you think the best possible world is? Well, they've believed for a long time that the best possible world from the perspective of a loving God who wants to be in relationship with people, the best possible world is a world in which people are free to choose to turn away from God's will, but freely choose not to. Let me say that again. From God's perspective, the best possible world is the world where people are free to choose to turn away from his will, but they freely choose not to. And in that scenario, people are able to get right what the first people got wrong and to avoid the consequences of sin. They believe the best possible world is a world where there is both knowledge of what happens when we turn from God and freedom. So we know the cost, we count the cost, and we don't turn away from him. We simply surrender to his will and to trust him. Because we're convinced, because of Jesus, that he's good. And that he's for us. And that he loves us. And that he's rescued us from sin and death because he wants to be in relationship with us. And so we just surrender to his will. That's life in the age to come. It's a life lived in complete, willing surrender to the God who created us and loves us. All that to say, I'm, I'm convinced that the pain that we experience in this life, and if, and if you're here this morning and you're sitting in a puddle of pain, um, I'm so, so glad you're here, but just hear this. This was not, this was not God's plan for us in the beginning. He knows how bad it hurts. And it breaks his heart. So it wasn't a part of his plan, but, but the potential for pain was a necessary condition of his love for us. Because if there was never a choice, he would never know if we really wanted to be with him. He wants relationship. And so he's willing to risk rejection. And pain always flows from people rejecting God's will in his ways. So as, as, we, as we wrap up, I um, just want to revisit something I said at the beginning. I, I know that um, this is not a very emotionally satisfying answer to the problem of pain. Um, if you had something happen this week or you're connected, again, to the Michigan State, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make you feel better. But I believe it to be true nonetheless. I believe it's a helpful answer because I think it can help us reframe the challenges that we face before we face them. And especially the challenges that we end up facing at the end of this life. All right, we'll, we'll pick it up there uh, next week with our second question. But for now, um, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, I pray specifically for friends that are here in the room or that tuned in online and, and the question on their lips as they entered this space today was why. And I hope that 
through this brief teaching um, something of your love, something of your light would creep into their heart that you would whisper to them that you know, you know they're groaning and it breaks your heart and to hang on and hold on because ultimately you will make everything right. Thank you for the love that drove you to create us with freedom. Thank you for your patience as you desire us all to turn back to your ways. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who came to do what only he could do and to embody the promise of what one day will be. And so for today, we say thank you. Thank you for this space. Thank you for this community. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name, the name above all names that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Before you leave, um, if you came into the space and you'd like to talk to someone or pray with someone, right under the left screen, we have some volunteers who'd love to meet with you. But for the rest of you, grace and peace to you. We'll see you next week.